welcome to the Gardens Podcast. This message titled, Dish, Soap, and Toilet Paper, was given by Darren Roundson and is the 13th in our series, The Kingdom. Good morning, my name is Darren. I'm glad to be with you this morning. Um, we're going through the book of Mark. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Um, and we have some Bibles on the side. Some people will pass out some Bibles to you. I have some questions to start off. Have you guys, has, have you ever done something, seen something, gone somewhere, and came back, or after you experienced that, your life was changed dramatically because of that event? Ever, have you ever gone somewhere, like, have you ever gone on a Mexico trip, come back, and just the way you see your finances, the way you, the way you, you, you see Starbucks just changes? Or maybe, maybe you broke your arm, and, uh, and, and you just, you, 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 t- you took for granted the use of both of your limbs. Maybe it was a broken foot. Or, or maybe um, you just entered into a relationship and it just began to change things. Have you, do you guys know what I'm talking about? Have you experienced those things in your life that just, you just see things completely different? My experience uh, with this is marriage. I got married like three and a half years ago. And on June 9th, 2007... Um, right? Yes. <laughs> June 9, 2007. Uh, I said I do. And at that moment, I became a husband. And I just thought I would share some of the things that changed um, throughout the last three and a half years, whether good or bad. Um, but things changed when I got married. Uh, when I got married, I, before I got married, I, I didn't wear a ring on any of my fingers. But I got married and I started wearing a ring. Uh, when I got married... Um, uh, before I was married, I, I would pay $275 for rent, and I lived with three other guys. And then I got married, and I paid a lot more to live with one other person. Uh, when I was single, <clears throat> I, I, I slept in my own bed. And when I got married, I slept in a bed with another person for the rest of my life. And, um, and, uh, and, and I had to learn how to navigate sleeping habits differently. Do you know what I'm talking about? When I was single, I would clean the house, but when I got married, I would really, really clean the house every, <laughs> every single week. When I was single, I would, I would, I would um, wash the dishes. When I was married, I would really wash the dishes. Or when I was single, I would, I would you know, clean the sheets every month, but when I got married, I would clean the sheets every week. Do you guys know what I'm saying? Or, or maybe, and those are just some of the fun ones, but... Um, you know, some of the serious ones, you know, are, are when, when you get married, you no longer are, are, are responsible just for one person. You're now responsible for another person. So now you see finances as not just something that you get to spend the money you have. You have to navigate, negotiate, and, and figure out how you guys are going to get on the same page and budget. So, so when I'm at the grocery store, I want to make sure I'm buying not just dish soap, but the right kind of dish soap. Do you guys know what I'm saying? Or, or for example, the, the most uh, obvious of all things that happen when you get married is men learn how to put on toilet paper um, on the roll, on the right, on the right way. Um, before, you just put it on, but then you actually now have to pay attention to the right kind of toilet paper and put it on the right. I think the top comes over. Right, babe? Yes. <laughs> Three and a half years, I'm still learning. But marriage, marriage in, in, in some ways, three and a half years ago, June 9th, 2007, 
I said I'd do, and whether I knew it or not, everything was going to change. The values that I had began to change. The way I saw myself, the fact that a woman that I love says to me that she loves me back, my identity begins to shift a little bit based on that, that new reality. And, and, and in marriage, in my marriage, um, for good or bad, marriage has, be, be, has redefined life as I knew it. It's redefined life. I, I'm journeying forever now for, in my lifetime with a woman that's next to me. And, and I don't have it figured out all the time, but, but that decision, that one decision has changed everything else, even dish soap and toilet paper. And we've been talking about the kingdom of God. And we've been going through the book of Mark. And we've been defining the kingdom of God. And, and we, we've looked through this great narrative. And what we realize is that the kingdom actually redefines everything else. That the kingdom is not just another reality, but the kingdom is reality. And reality is that which is. Or... or um, uh, or things as they actually are or as they actually exist. Not just an idea, not just a concept. It, r- the kingdom, therefore, is what is. Kingdom is reality. Just like marriage became my reality um, when I got married. But when I was single, it was just an idea. It was just a concept. We were just moving towards the day I would get married. I wasn't married. Um, uh, marriage is not something that happens just because two people live together. Or just because you're in a dating relationship doesn't mean you have, and you move in together, doesn't mean you're married. No, marriage is something far more greater. It's far more significant. It's been designed from the beginning of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. And marriage says in Genesis 2 that it takes complete devotion. Moses says, husband will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And that one person will become, those two people will become one flesh. Marriage is mysterious. It's overwhelming, and it involves total commitment. And it's a reality that I live in. The kingdom of God is a reality like that. Excuse me. I'm going to bring this down. The kingdom of God, all throughout the book of Mark, is redefining Jewish symbols. It's redefining the way you see the temple as a Jew. Jesus begins to redefine the way you see the Israelite community. He begins to redefine Sabbath. These are all ritual, uh, re- religious practices that, that, that Jesus begins to reinterpret as he begins to embody and teach and demonstrate the kingdom of God. He, he begins to reveal how um, within the first century, the expectations of discipleship change with him. You're not looking for the best of the best. He's just looking for people to say yes to him. So discipleship has changed. Relationships to one another are changed. The mission of God is redefined in view of of Jesus and his life. And so we see through the book of Mark, and this is what we've been talking about, that, that Jesus is in fact redefining the kingdom. And we realize that Jesus is the only one that gets to define reality. So as people come in and try to 
try to insert their idea of what the kingdom, what God should be like, Jesus reinterprets it for them. Or as success comes in and crowds begin to form, Jesus will actually push back against the crowds and not allow the crowds and success in ministry with numbers to define what his mission is all about. So Jesus is the one that gets to define the kingdom. And we see these characters that keep coming up, the Pharisees. The Pharisees will come in and they'll say, hey, um, the kingdom of God or God needs to be defined by rituals, by rules, by regulations, by systems. And Jesus pushes back and he says, no, the kingdom is defined by relationship. The kingdom is defined by the center. Demons will push back. Circumstances will push back. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I get to define the mission. I get to define the kingdom. I am defining God. And so last week we see, as Jesus is doing this all throughout the book of Mark, we see that Jesus, uh, he, he, he reinterprets Israel. He selects 12 men and appoints them as possible, apostles. And, and this is very symbolic. Jesus is now saying, I'm forming a new Israel around me. Before Israel was based around Torah, based around Yahweh, but now Israel will be based around me. And so he selects 12 apostles representing the 12 tribes to, to, to be with him. Do you remember this? To be with him. To be sent out to proclaim the message of the kingdom and to have authority over demons. So Jesus just did this. He appoints the 12 around him. And now he's making a very symbolic statement. I am Yahweh. And this is the new Israel. So go with me to, uh, to Mark, where we pick up in the story. Mark chapter 3. Jesus redefining reality. Um, if you have a red Bible, it's um, page 8, 814. Mark chapter 3. We're looking um, at verse 19. Let's read this together, and, and we'll walk through it, and then um, we'll talk through it together. You guys with me today? Yeah. All right, sounds good. Um, Mark chapter 3 says this, verse 20, I'm sorry, verse 19. Then he went home, and the crowd came together again, so they, they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying, he has gone out of his mind. And the scribes, who came down from Jerusalem, said, he has Beelzebul, and by the ruler of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him, and he spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If the kingdom is divided against itself, then that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but his end has come. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then indeed the house can be plundered. Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they, uh, for they had said, he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Okay, so this is what the text we're going to be working through, but um, there's, a, there's a, a scholarly 
word for what Mark is doing in this particular passage. It's a very brilliantly labeled idea. It's called the sandwich technique. And so what Mark does is he starts a story, injects another story, and finishes off the story that he originally started. So you could say that Mark starts with the bread, goes to the meat, and comes back with some more bread. And that's what we just read in this story. So what I want to do is start with the meat, and then we'll talk about the two breads, and then we'll land on what this means today. You with me? You ready for some Marcane sandwich? I didn't write that one down either. That was good. Uh, That was good. My jokes aren't funny if I write them down. I realize that. I'm learning about myself. So it starts off, um, so let's look at verse 22. Verse 22, I want to read this. It says this, and, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebul, or some, maybe you have Beelzebub in your transla- translation, and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. Dun, dun, dun. So we see this. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm into this, okay. So we see this. The scribes from Jerusalem come to Jesus and say that you have Beelzebul or you are possessed by the, the prince of demons. So in the first century, scribes were the governmental or religious um, uh, officials from the Sanhedrin court. Sanhedrin's kind of the PhDs of, the Jude- uh, of Jewish religion. So the Sanhedrin's Um, There was a a group of people that would meet, and they would send out these officials known as scribes. And these officials would go to different parts of the the Israel Israel countryside, and they would um, either validate or discredit teachers and teachings. So this is kind of the stamp of approval. Scribes would come, and they would validate on behalf of all Judaism your teaching as a teacher or discredit your teaching. And so this is what's happening. The scribes are coming now representing Judaism, representing the temple, and they're saying to Jesus, you are possessed. Now in the first century, if Judaism, if the rulers of Israel wanted to discredit or or stop a political slash religious movement, they would send a scribe and attach the teacher to an ancient cultic deity and his teachings to another. So in other words, the scribes would do this as a political confrontation. They would come and say, you are possessed by an ancient god. This is normal in the first century. If they felt that what the teacher was doing was causing conflict that was disturbing the peace, scribes would come, and in order to stop the movement, they would say, you're possessed by such and such god. Or your, your practice, your teaching is done like this. We do this all the time. We still do this. We'll attach people to heresy. Do you know what I'm talking about? This is what the scribes would do to stop Jesus' movement. So they're coming already with a decision made in their minds that he is no longer able to teach. They're trying to end his ministry. They're, They're trying to redirect his mission and restrain it from going any further. And so the officials come not asking questions like, hey, what's, what, what's your take on Sabbath? What's your take on the temple? Hey, if you heal this guy, what's going to happen? They're asking questions. They're now confronting him saying, this is not okay. You guys catch this? And Beelzebul is actually a very interesting uh, guy to, to kind of bring into the picture because Beelzebul is, uh, it means, or Beelzebub, it means the Lord of the flies, Lord of the dung pile, Lord of the dwelling. But it's attached to a, a, an Old Testament God that we know of, Baal. Have you heard of Baal? Baal is found just, the, the center for Baal worship is just north of Capernaum where this whole thing is taking place. 
And so we see the Jewish officials are coming saying, they're not, they're not discrediting the fact that he has power or that his ministry is actually effective or that he is delivering, but now they're saying the power source is coming from another God, a demon, the prince of darkness. You guys catch what's going on. So this isn't just about a, mis- a misunderstanding of who Jesus is. This is a political attack. This is trying to stop the movement of Jesus in a very political way. And so we see that they attach him to this god Baal, which um, I, I, is a fascinating idea. This actually, in Greek, this, this whole dialogue is almost like a wordplay. Jesus uses this whole idea that Baal actually is attached to the, 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 um, the Lord of the house. And Jesus uses the phrase, strong man, you can't enter a house. Anyways, it's beautiful. I, I don't want to get into it. I'll get distracted. Um, but I love it. Um, but anyways, so the scribes are fixated on their power and their religious order, and they can't stand the fact that Jesus is growing in popularity, so they're trying to end it. So they bring this political kind of association to people you don't want to be associated with, or demons that you don't want to be associated with. So um, we, we know that that's what's going on. I just want to pause and just say, think about how devastating this is. The rulers of Judaism, the people that have the light, those that are experts in Torah, in the law, in the ways of Judaism, they are so fixated on their power that they can't see what God is doing in their midst. Their expectations of Messiah is so heavy that they're missing the Messiah in their midst. Go to Isaiah 61. I just want to show you what, I mean, how devastating Jesus, this would have been. This will help us understand what Jesus is saying. Isaiah 61. Remember, we're looking at the book of Mark through the lens of Isaiah. Um, and Isaiah 61 most likely would have been memorized by all the scribes of Israel. In fact, the entire Old Testament was most likely memorized by heart by the scribes of Israel. So you have these public officials saying, what you're doing is done by the work of a demon. And and look at what what the promise, the Messiah was going to come and do this. The servant of God was going to come. And this is what it would be marked by. And just look at at what we we read in, in Isaiah 61. It says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Right in their midst, the Messiah is bringing uh, bringing the captives, setting the captives free spiritually. And the rulers of, of the Israelite religion cannot see what's going on because they're so gripped by their own expectations of Jesus. It's devastating. And so Jesus responds, And uh, let's go back to Mark. Jesus responds with some parables, and I just want to walk through this real quick. And he says this in verse 3. I'm sorry, in chapter 3, verse um, 23. Um, And he called them to him. And and Mark will use this this language. And he called them to him. Anytime Mark uses that phrase, it means that, hey, what what Jesus is about to say is really important. Um, it's, It's used eight times in the book of Mark. It says, and he called them to him, and he spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But his end has come. 
basically he brings this logical argument. What you guys are saying is absolutely illogical. If, God, if Satan is against himself, he's divided. If a house is against itself, it's divided. It won't stand. He's basically saying, if Satan, if I'm casting out demons through the power of Satan, then we know that that house is divided and his end is about to come. But obviously that's not what's going on. You guys catch it. He's just saying this is so dumb. You are so dumb. <laughs> For real. And then Jesus says, he's climbing in your windows. He's no, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but then this next verse, um, which is actually kind of funny. He's climbing in your windows. Um, Jesus defines his mission. This is where Jesus defines part of what he's come to do. This is what it's all about. And his mission is this. He says, but no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then indeed the house can be plundered. So Jesus says, look guys, if Satan is against, against himself, great, he's gonna, his end is come. But he says this, no one can tie up a strong man. No one can plunder the property of a strong man without binding the strong man first. The mission of Jesus is that he had come to release the spiritual captives from all those things opposing God's will, opposing his rule. You see, this is what Jesus is saying in, in a nutshell. Hey guys, my father's world is not going the way it was intended to go. You were designed and given an image that had power and authority over all of creation. And somewhere along the, the, the way, you gave that power and authority back to the power of darkness through sin through the evil one, through Satan, through the accuser. You handed over your image to him and your rightful rule of earth. And so I've come in to take back what is rightfully yours by binding up the strong man, by, by literally embodying our sin on the cross. And through the resurrection, Jesus is fulfilling this mission. Do you catch this? Jesus is saying the real enemy, guys, is not this Rome. But the real enemy is sin, death, the power of darkness, evil, everything that is opposing God and his rule. And so in this passage, Jesus begins to articulate something that's much deeper. Because in the first century, the Jewish community were expecting that the Messiah would come and he would release the captives. And the captives weren't these spiritual, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't captives of sin and death. That's not what they thought that Jesus or, or Isaiah was talking about. They thought Isaiah was talking about the oppressive government of Rome. Remember, Israel was uh, under the foreign rule of Rome. And they were expecting that the Messiah would come with a sword and defeat the Roman emperor and restore Israel back once and for all. And so when Jesus is coming with his peace, and when he says this idea about the strongman, he's hinting that there's something greater, there's a bigger tyrant, there's something else going on. And his fight is not against Rome. The real enemy is Satan and the power of evil and darkness. Are you guys catching what he's, what he's doing? And so he's saying to the scribes, look, this is why I've come. And he's, he's referring to himself as someone that's, that's uh, mightier than the strong man, that he's come to, to bind up Satan and the work that he has and really to end the, the slavery of sin and death on humanity. You could say it like this. Jesus' mission 
is to liberate humanity and creation from the power of evil. Jesus' mission is to liberate humanity and creation from the power of evil. That's what he's saying he's come to do. And we see that in the story of Mark, that he ties the knot, guys, through the cross and resurrection. Bill talked about this a little bit last week, but I feel like so many of us give so much attention to the kingdom that's against us versus the kingdom that's for us. You guys with me? And we could get fixated on this idea of the strong man and what that means practically. What it means practically is Jesus' mission is to liberate humanity and creation from the power of evil. That means personal sin and corporate sin. That means oppression. It means poverty. It means anything that's destroying the earth and against God and His will and rule and reign. Are you guys with me? Jesus' cross, the cross and resurrection is tying the knot of the strong man. Now, he has been defeated, and his power has been stripped of him. What was the greatest power against humanity? Separation from God through sin and death. And because of Christ, we now enter in to relationship through him. So what he had over us, he no longer has. Are you with me? Now, he's still working himself out, and that's the whole, the now and not yet. But when Christ comes once and for all, the ultimate reality will be restored on earth as it is in heaven. And so there's a whole bunch of questions and conversations about this. But what the text is saying is that Jesus' mission is he's come to liberate humanity and creation from the grips of evil and anything opposing God. And then he goes on and he gives a warning. And this, is, this has been so confusing. So many people have so many different perspectives on this. But it's the whole blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Uh, his, his response is really a, a warning. So he says, guys, this is what I've come to do. Now listen to this. Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But it's like, heed this warning. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they, uh, for they had said he has an unclean spirit. Many of us are, have been so confused by this passage. I know it's so controversial, but it's really very, very simple. You see, Jesus is warning the scribes who know that what Jesus is doing is the work of God. And they are attributing the work of God to the work of a demon. What, what Jesus is saying is he's saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't allow your, your, yourself to get to a place where you're going to attribute good to evil and evil to good. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to the one who call evil good and good evil, who puts darkness for light and light for darkness. Jesus is saying, don't attribute the work of the Holy Spirit to the work of Satan. Now, he's not saying this, that if you accidentally just say, oh, that was a demon when it was really God, he's not saying you have eternal damnation. (sighs) Breathe. Okay? He's talking about a condition of the heart. He's saying if you get to a place where you attribute good to evil, evil to good, demons, what God is doing to what Satan's doing, then you're beyond conviction. You guys catch this. You're beyond conviction. If you begin to, to call good evil and evil good, and, and vice versa, you're just, you're just blind and you're lost. You're beyond conviction. Because just think about this. Remember what the Holy Spirit comes to do. Holy Spirit comes to convict convict the world. When the Holy Spirit comes to convict, He's not coming to convict for damnation. He's coming to convict for redemption. 
you move to a place where you're attributing literally the work of God for that of Satan, you're beyond what is truth. You're beyond what is conviction. You're beyond what is a redeemable place. Are you guys with me? I know it's, that's controversial and it's kind of a, a tight subject, but I just know this. If you're concerned about it, you don't have to worry about it. <laughs> this is about a condition of the heart. And so Jesus warns those that actually know what the work of God looks like, don't call it that of Satan. So he, he ends with a warning. But just let's not focus too much on that because the warning right before or, is that, hey, you'll be forgiven for anything else, but don't go that way. Okay? Do I need to... Stay there a little bit, or we want to just keep moving? Yeah, it's a little scary. Let's keep moving. <laughs> be freed. And if you, honestly, if you want to talk about that after, I read a lot on that this week. Um, don't be worried. And, and there's, it's kind of a controversial thing. Don't be afraid. Don't be worried. It, it literally is just a condition of the heart. And if you have any bit of concern about it, you don't have that condition, okay? Your heart is not that. So if you want to talk to me after, feel free. Let's keep going. So let's talk about the bread, and then we'll land. And uh, I'm excited to land this one. Okay. Because I get the difficult ones, Beelzebul and, and all this stuff. So let's start with the bread. Verse uh, 20, then he went home, and the crowd came together again, so they, they, uh, they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying he has gone out of his mind. So he's back at home. This is most likely where Peter um, uh, invited him into his house, where he healed his mom. This is also the place where the paralytic was healed. He's back at home. The crowds are pressing in on him, and they're, dis- dis- they're stopping him from having table fellowship. And his family hears about this, but most likely what's going on is that his family knows that there is an official attack coming against him publicly through the scribes, and they're trying to restrain him. Notice this. His family thinks he's crazy, and his family's trying to restrain the mission that Jesus has. And we see that little uh, snippet of the scribes, then go down to 31, and it says this. Then his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they went to him and called to him. A crowd was sitting around him, um, and he, uh, they said to him, your mother, is at, uh, your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at them who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. His family tries to restrain him. There's a story that's interjected about defining the mission that he has. And then he comes back with this line about who are my mother, my brother, and my sisters. Jesus has just publicly shamed his family. He is saying something so scandalous in a culture that says your family defines who you are. In a culture that says actually whatever your family expects of you is okay. Jesus says no, 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 no. My family are those who are around me, who are sitting with me and do the will of the Father. Jesus is redefining family expectations. Imagine this. In the Old Testament, you read about laws where if a son disrespects a father, the father has a right to kill the son. In that type of culture, culture that still goes on today in the Middle East where where there are battles being waged hundreds of years old that have to do with an uncle doing something to another cousin, yet the families are in turmoil in warfare. This is the type of family system that we're talking about in the Middle East. And Jesus is saying, actually, no, 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 no. The kingdom trumps family ties. That discipleship, 
that your relationship to me will redefine all other relationships that you have. In other words, you could say that the kingdom of God redefines reality. The kingdom of God changes everything. From these passages, just as we break down, there's, there's a couple of things happening. First of all, Jesus defines his mission as one that is liberating humanity over the rule of evil. And we see that he has the final say over sin and death. And we see this through what he's doing with healings, what he's doing with sermons and preaching, what he's doing with casting out demons. And the people that don't get it are the religious leaders who are unable to accept this Messiah. Because, um, because they have political power and they're unable to, to accept this type of Messiah and Jesus warns them. The second thing is this. Jesus defines family. The kingdom of God creates a new family reality. It defines family by those who are, surrounded, uh, who are surrounding Jesus, those that are near Jesus, those that are with Jesus, and those that are doing the will of the Father. In other words, you could say that, that uh, um, Jesus is defining new relationships. Jesus actually comes first and everything else flows out of that reality. Let me put it this way. How do we say this today? Um, I'm just going to kind of lead with some questions. Let's think about this. How is Jesus violating your expectations of life? How is Jesus violating your expectations of life? Maybe just write that down and reflect as we worship. I want to throw out a few questions. And as, as we begin to kind of settle this in, I know there's a lot of tension. and I'm going to make this land in just a second. How is Jesus violating your expectations of life? Are you going to let him be Jesus? Or are you trying to restrain him or redirect him or redefine the life he wants to give you here and now? How is he violating your expectations of life? You see, when Jesus comes in, the religious leaders have brilliant expectations of what the Messiah is supposed to do. Jesus doesn't meet those expectations. Can anyone relate to that? Or when you, because of how long you've been with somebody, you could actually demand or expect something, but then he turns around and says something that just blows your mind and it redefines your relationship to him. Through what he says is now the most important thing. Are you guys with me on that? How many of us push back against the kingdom? How about, how about this? When I got married, whether I knew it or not, whether I knew what I was getting into, whether I knew, whether I chose it or not, my relationship to Alex changed everything else. It changed the way I saw toilet paper. It changed the way I saw dish soap. It changed the way I purchased things. It changed the way I sleep at night. Three and a half years ago, when I said I do, I did not know all the things that were going to change through this new relationship. But because I said yes, because I said I do, and because I have a biblical pers perspective of marriage, I chose at that moment, and I choose in every moment, not always because I blow it so many times, 
but I choose to live as a husband who's married to a wife. And not just a husband to a wife, but a husband that's supposed to model Christ to the church. So in that choice that happened way back here three and a half years ago, every single choice I have today is now reflecting that decision. In fact, everything I see is changed by that one decision. By that relationship. You ever think that maybe the church has been preaching rituals and religion for so long because we realize that marriage is so much harder than dating? Because dating, we get to drop her off at the end of the night, pick her up whenever we schedule our next date. We can Skype, we can talk. But when things get really bad, we can just go home at the end of the day. Or when things aren't going our way, we can just move, move along and, and try something else or look for something better. You ever think maybe the, the Jesus we've been preaching is a Jesus that we're dating, not a Jesus we're married to in the church? That we've taught conversion and not discipleship in the church? That our expectations of what it means to be a follower of Christ have been lowered to the standards of dating when God wants to invite us into a marriage relationship where you see all the nasty and all the good stuff. And at the end of the day, toilet paper and, and, and dish soap change because of this new marriage. You with me? You see, I think the church has done a great job of teaching dating because marriage is way more complicated. It's like we as a church have tried to just give, in, give, give our congregants, the people that sit in the seats, we try to just make Jesus at least an accessory like a WWJD bracelet versus the whole garment that we walk in as we walk outside our door. We want to give you glasses that you can put on your shirt for, for something that's cool and in, hip and in style rather than looking through the spectac spectacles of the kingdom of God. You see, if you believe in this type of Messiah, He's really going to mess with your life. Because all of a sudden, when this Lord, this Jesus is Lord of your life, your finances are no longer yours. Jesus begins to redefine your finances. He, he, the things that you purchase actually have meaning. It speaks to your, the condition of your heart. It speaks to the things that you value. When you believe in this type of Jesus, when He's Lord of your life, you don't just walk and work in a certain way. You work as a Messiah, as, as someone that's a Messiah to the world. You're an ambassador for the reconciliation of the world. When, you, when, when, the, when Jesus invades your life in this type of way, your expectations for the future change. Your understanding of how you see people change. You don't see people in how you want to feel or how they seem to you. You begin to see them in the lens of Christ, in the lens of God, who validates, affirms, and loves the most unlovable people, those that sit at night in the cracks of society. Jesus comes and embraces them. How many of us have this type of Messiah? How many of us have this type of kingdom? 
when we, if we even push it further, we recognize that our time has changed. The way we see our time, the way we spend our money, the way we see people, the way we deal with life, the way we handle stress, the way we worship on Sunday morning, the way we calendar events, the way we say yes and no, everything about our lives changed when we marry Jesus in discipleship. Everything changes. So do you allow him to be the Lord of your life? Or are you trying to redirect it? You know, the question is this. Is Jesus... If you don't allow Jesus to be God, then you're just worshiping an idol made in your own image. Let me conclude with this. You see, the kingdom of God comes as good news. The kingdom, of, the kingdom of God comes as good news. But what we realize along the way is that every other kingdom will die, even our own. And now we can understand why the Pharisees could not handle this type of Messiah. Because if you say yes to Jesus, you're not saying yes to a Sunday gathering. You're saying left, let, yes to a way of life. Are you just dating or are you married? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for uh, the gift that you get to define the way the world should work and you design this world. Thank you, Jesus, that we can sit as your beloved. as your family, freed, liberated. Lord, I pray for this provocative concept, this provocative reality. I pray for my brothers and sisters right now that have only experienced you through just reading a text once in a while, reading a book. Those that have experienced you through shame and guilt, those that have experienced you through religion and regulation and rituals, God, I pray that this morning we might be open to the idea of what discipleship looks like, which is more of a marriage than it is of, of a formula. So Lord Jesus, would you this morning come as, as Yahweh, Come as the living God and break down the rituals, Lord. Help us end the dating relationship today and move into a marriage with you, God. So bless this time in your name. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear other messages from the garden, or if you would like to find out more about the Garden Church, check out our website at thegardenlb.org.